Modern Americans owe a tremendous debt to the ordinary patriots who launched the insurgency that became a revolution that brought independence. Simply put, without them, there would be no United States. The minimum repayment is to know their history. Anyone wishing to cloak present-day complaints in that early generation sacrifice ought to understand how it managed during a severe political crisis to bring forth a new republic dedicated to rights, equality, and liberty. This morning's opening words were from historian T.H. Breen in an opinion piece printed in the Star Tribune April 3rd, originally written for the Washington Post. I saved it thinking it might be a good start for a Fourth of July service. Ben thought so too and agreed to work on this service with me. Professor Breen's book was released in May. It is titled American Insurgents, American Patriots, The Revolution of the People. Professor Breen is an award-winning scholar and professor of history at Northwestern University. This service will draw heavily from his opinion piece, his book, and a lecture I found online. American insurgents tell a story, tells a story of the American Revolution. Professor Breen focuses specifically on the tens of thousands of ordinary Americans in the early days of the Revolution from roughly the summer of 1774 to the signing of the Declaration of Independence in 1776. His book is the story of the rebellion before the Revolution and the insurgents who, with success, have become history's patriots. Professor Breen was inspired to write this book because he felt that there was a lack of information about the insurgents who made the revolution possible. He used diary entries, sermons, letters, and newspaper articles to weave together what he presents as an account of the thinking among the common man and woman. Of this book, Edmund Morgan, emeritus professor of history at Yale, says, Breen has uncovered the grassroots of the American Revolution in the unheralded acts of ordinary people. In the opinion piece, Professor Breen made four major points. The American patriots of 1773 and 1774 worked hard to promote unity. The colonists did not protest taxation. The colonists appreciated that any disgruntled person can mouth words of protest. Resistance to Britain, however, demanded serious sacrifice. And his last point in the opinion piece was, Americans who supported resistance understood that revolution could destabilize the entire social order. After enlarging on these four points, I will leave it to you, for the most part, to consider which protests justifiably claim, claim kinship with the original American patriots. And more importantly, and more importantly, what might be gained if more Americans embraced the principles that guided the American patriots in 1774 and 75. And please note, the absence of familiar names like Thomas Jefferson is because we are focusing on the common patriot, not because we have been reading textbooks from Texas. Thank you. Okay. Point one, the American patriots of 1773 and 74 worked hard to promote unity. 
The 13 colonies could have broken into small squabbling units, an event that would have doomed effective military resistance to Great Britain. But rather than trumpeting narrow regional ideological or class interests, They insisted on promoting a general American cause. They understood it was only by working together that they could hold their own against the empire. Breen explains, Colonists lived in a far more open, interactive society than most modern Americans realize. Even in small, largely self-contained villages, they welcomed news from distant strangers. This intelligence sparked far-reaching debates in hundreds of communities about basic political values, about the nature of political responsibility, and about the possibility that their country was no longer a meaningful part of the British Empire. The swirl of messages about resistance and mutual obligation created a situation in which ordinary men and women could construct a new political identity. Now, this emphasis on the common good is inherent in our UU principles, perhaps most specifically in our sixth principle, the goal of world community with peace, liberty, and justice for all. As I was preparing for this service, NPR was playing in the background. It's almost always playing in the background of my house. The the immigration issue was being reported, specifically President Obama's comments at American University uh, just this past Thursday. He said... The fact is, without bipartisan support, we cannot solve this problem. Immediately, several Republicans said they could not support his proposal, a proposal that was almost identical to a bill they supported four years ago. What progress we could make if the common good was more fundamental to our elected leaders than obstruction, posturing, and elections? I know this goes both ways. This was just a recent example. Breen's second point was the colonists did not protest taxation. To be clear, they protested what? Taxation. Exactly. An entirely different matter. During the summer of 1774, when Parliament punished the city of Boston for the destruction of the East India Company's tea, people throughout Massachusetts Bay continued to pay taxes to the colonial government. But in town after town, colonists voted to no longer transfer tax revenue to Harrison Gray, a treasurer of loyalist sympathies, but instead to send monies which they then had, or in the future might have, in their hands belonging to the province. They would send it instead to Henry Gardner, a treasurer with colonist sympathies. Breen writes, anyone who misses this point risks missing the fact that ordinary American patriots accepted the legitimate burdens of supporting a government in which they enjoyed genuine representation. His third point, the colonists appreciated that any disgruntled person could word word mouths of protest Resistance to Britain, however, demanded serious sacrifice. Long before there was a clash of arms, ordinary Americans desiring to demonstrate publicly their full support for the patriotic cause participated in increasingly successful boycotts of British imported manufacturers. A Connecticut newspaper stated the point bluntly. If we mean still to be free, let us unanimously lay aside foreign superfluities and encourage our own manufacture. Save your money and you will save your country. Sacrifice, they knew, bred unity. 
Green concludes, giving up something desired declared giving up something desired declared their intentions and forged solidarity far more meaningful, meaningfully than angry rhetoric. Rhetoric. Sorry, my tongue's just a little dry today. Americans who supported resistance understood that revolution could destabilize the entire social order. Mass movements, no matter how worthy, often degenerate into anarchy, and private complaint serves only to compromise the common good. There are a lot of just really great quotes in this book, and so I'm trying to use some of the language of the day. Um, This is from the Reverend Nathan Fisk in Brookfield, Massachusetts, explaining to his congregation in 1774. When people oppose the authority of their rulers, it is generally called insurrection and rebellion. And when a mob assumes the government into their own hands, they are in danger of committing such violence and outrage as are many degrees beyond the guilt and mischief of bare opposition. For Fisk, risking arbitrary rulers for the common good was one thing, engaging in self-serving lawless riots that had capacity to become tyrannical, imperious, and oppressive, quite another. So America seceded to the Continental Congress leadership in creating a national infrastructure of revolution. That body ordered each town and county to elect a committee to monitor the consumer boycott. This elaborate structure, a framework for creative conversation between national and local goals, helps sustain a rule of law. What inspired such forward thinking? Breen proposes it was their steadfast belief in God and a rights-based philosophy. It was, however, a newly refined belief in God that made the colonists believe they could challenge the King of England. A young Anglican preacher from England, Reverend George Whitefield, is credited with being the most influential of the evangelical preachers who began the religious movement known as the Great Awakening. This was the movement that began in the 1740s and continued for at least four decades. Most of the American families that were part of the revolution had been part of this religious movement. Reverend Whitefield preached about feelings, not church doctrines. He preached to whomever would listen, discounting the importance of religious affiliations. Instead, he encouraged people to identify themselves only as Christian. Many became separatists or universalists, marking out a different path to salvation. Now, because the separates and universalists at the time were engaged in such independent thinking, they kept splintering off, so did not become a force on their own. Regardless, this independent thinking affected the insurgency. As Breen said, this thinking is the stuff of radical resistance. Such a belief can give a person a powerful sense of moral certainty. And their shared philosophy, not divine decree, but human consent, The central element in popular political thought among the colonists was a set of rights that God gave every man and every woman. Those rights were universal, and every human could claim them. But rights carried responsibilities. God expected the people to preserve their rights. This served to empower the people in the contest against tyranny. As vigilant defenders of rights, they became judges of those who held authority, They determined if their magistrates were, in fact, working for the common good. 
Breen proposes that, in general terms, the Americans were all children of the 17th century philosopher John Locke. They subscribed to his rights-based philosophy without caring about intellectual genealogies. In fact, many had never read Locke. Some had never heard of him. Still, their humble arguments for the insurgency share much with Locke. In 1773, the inhabitants of Hubberston, a small farming community in Massachusetts, announced, We are of the opinion that rulers derive their power from the ruled by certain laws and rules agreed upon by ruler and ruled. And when a ruler breaks over such laws and rules as agreed to by ruler and ruled and makes new ones, then the ruled have a right to refuse such new laws and that the ruled have a right to judge for themselves when rulers transgress. The Reverend Nathan Perkins delivered a sermon June 2nd, 1775 in Connecticut to soldiers who went from West Concord in defense of their country. Most of you are strangers to the dreadful horrors of battle. Why then, he asked, should they risk death? You have everything to inspire you with undaunted fortitude. You fight not for your daily bread, not for fourpence sterling a day, but for your lives, your property, your native land, your dearest friends, your just rights, all you hold dear as men and women, your all. Breen concludes, if these motives do not fire your souls in a country's cause, what can? Well, I propose maybe Thomas Paine. In January 1775, a publication called The Crisis first appeared in London. It consisted of a series of essays which ran in newspapers and were also distributed as pamphlets. Most were published anonymously. A Google search credits them to Thomas Paine, but it seems more likely that they were penned by several different authors. These essays made their way to the colonies. They started out in England and ended up with the colonies. They predated Thomas Paine's Common Sense, which was not published until 1776. The crisis expressed the concerns of ordinary Americans. The tone was strident, intemperate, and adversarial. It sounded an alarm. The essays explain not only who was to blame in Britain for the oppressive imperial policies, but also what they must do to save their country. The essays were hugely successful and were read by many. Their influence was significant in rallying the insurgents. After the publication of the third essay, considered highly insulting to George III, most of the House of Commons and the House of Lords proposed proposed prosecuting the crisis, these essays called the crisis, for high treason, a capital offense. They were not able to convince government lawyers that the paper had actually committed treason, but the attempt to stifle this communication only served to heighten interest in, the, in that publication. In the months leading up to April 1775 and the battles of Lexington and Concord, you probably all know this, but that's considered the beginning of the Revolutionary War as it was the first occasion when gunfire between Ameri 
that had gunfire between American and British troops. So in the months leading up to that event, the colonists sensed a growing strength in numbers. As individuals, they reasoned about the rights and oppression, about sacrifice. But the movement gained momentum. They began to experience an exhilarating feeling of solidarity. The Reverend Nathaniel Niles understood how protest took root in the community level. Speaking to his congregation in New Newburyport, shortly after the British blockaded the port, he said, Acts are composed of seconds, the earth of sands, and the sea of drops, too small to be seen by the naked eye. The smallest particles have their influence. Such is our state that each individual has a proportion of influence on some neighbor at least, he on another, and so on. As in a river, the following drop urges that which is forever before, and every one through the whole length of the stream has influence. We must begin with the weight we have. As I conclude my part of the, uh, this service, let me speak about imperfection and gratitude. The insurgents were flawed, and they made mistakes. Ben will say more about this. The lofty descriptions are true, but it is also true that many were racist, many mistreated the American Indians, many were motivated by anger, revenge, fear, a sense of betrayal. This led to a sense of justification for the violence. They felt a heartfelt sense to defend their God-given rights. Breen posits that resistance cannot happen without the intensity of these emotions. He said, without these emotions, you would simply have a debating society. From Paul Simon, we come at the age's most uncertain hour and sing the American tune. Later, you will be invited to join in the closing hymn, a hymn of gratitude. Please hear the words. While we live in an, imp in an imperfect world, an imperfect nation, we still have much to be grateful for on this 4th of July weekend. I'd certainly like to express my gratitude to the musicians for contribu contributions ranging from the reverential, as we just heard, to the witty and completely irreverent that we heard from Charles Ives. <laughs> Historians of this nation have debated at length whether the American Revolution was a top-down or bottom-up affair. We all know about the founders, educated children of the Enlightenment, and trusted by their countrymen first with the, drawing, uh, with the business of the Continental Congress and then later with the drawing up of the foundational documents of the nation. Did they set the direction and steer the rebellion? That's the top-down version that we all learned in school. Or were they following the lead of their compatriots, thousands upon thousands of them, loosely organized into committees and militias, whose sometimes rash actions forced the founders to scramble to give intellectual cohesion and international credibility to a, to a revolt that they were powerless to, to moderate? That's the bottom-up version. As you've heard from Ginny, T.H. Breen's book, American Insurgents, American Patriots, is a vigorous argument for the bottom-up thesis. And I'm grateful to Ginny for setting it out. 
I have a decidedly mixed reaction to this account. I rather like the cozy assumption that our nation was born of the Enlightenment. Our great founding documents, the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, are suffused with Enlightenment thinking. And they are more precious to this nation than any possible material resources. The religious right claims that this is a Christian nation and repudiates the Enlightenment as a sort of cancer of relativism, which, as we know, was only a slippery slope away from chaos and damnation. To the extent that the emotionally charged religiosity whipped up by the preachers of the Great Awakening did more to propel the nation into being than the French philosophe. And Breen makes a strong case that that's exactly what happened. To that extent, the religious right and the Texas school board gain a foothold in their claims that we religious liberals are mere elitists trying to impose our illegitimate stamp on the founding of their nation. To top it off, Breen documents how the insurgent actions that began the second phase of the rebellion, the phase in which patriots from all the colonies were knit together into one movement, those actions were precipitated by wild rumor and by the escapades of self-serving hotheads, not, as we would like to think, by calmly reflective, evidence-based investigation of the circumstances surrounding the Boston Tea Party and General Gage's responses to it. For example, just as the distinguished members of the Continental Congress were assembling in Philadelphia in late summer 1774, a report arrived that the British had bombarded Boston in an attempt to level the city. Congress learned only a couple of days later that this was only a rumor. But in the meantime, fast riders had carried the news, the false news, all over New England, and tens of thousands of volunteers from hundreds of towns were on the march toward Boston. On the march, tens of thousands. The founders didn't even get a chance to get their hands on the tiller, so to speak, let alone steer the ship. Instead, they wound up endorsing first a truly radical doctrine called the Suffolk Resolves, which proclaimed the right of individuals to nullify laws. Let me say that again. The right of individuals to nullify laws. And a month later, issued a declaration known as the Association. I'm sorry about the syntax. Why they called the declaration the Association, I don't know, but they did. And that's what called for a radical boycott of British goods and for insurgents to organize local committees, as Ginny told you, to police violations of the boycott. Those committees, variously called committees of safety, committees of correspondence, committees of observation, and so on, were key to why the rebellion turned out as it did, and I will come back to them. Now, Substitute Rush Limbaugh for 18th century hotheads, and you see why I don't like where this account of history is going. <laughs> it's not a matter of personalities and style. There's another recent myth-shattering piece, last week's Wall Street Journal Saturday essay, in which Ron Chernow describes the founders as fully capable of the most vitriolic factional venom. I'd read you some, but it's not polite language in church. <clears throat> even drawing the famously self-controlled George Washington into partisanship. In the bottom-up account of the revolution, virtually all that matters about the founders before the Declaration of Independence is that they had dignified reputations and per the perhaps accidental wisdom to call for the formation of those committees. 
No, what, what it's really about is whether the enlightenment values that I keep harping on, the appeal to reason and the reliance on empirical evidence, whether those significantly influence the revolution at all and can still command the soul of the nation. To put it another way, when Tea Party sympathizers lay claim to the inheritance of the revolution, who or what is to gainsay them? Well, as Ginny has explained, T.H. Breen himself gives it a good try in that op-ed piece from last April. To summarize, you can't claim to share the spirit of the American insurgency unless your protest is in service of all your countrymen, not us versus them, unless you concede a role for taxes and government, unless you are making a significant personal sacrifice for the common good, and unless you understand representative government and are willing to cede decision-making power to elected representatives. Ginny has also described the religious roots of the insurgency, and I'd like to follow that line, focusing on a near miracle of the human spirit. Only 15 years later, the French Revolution and many revolutions subsequently degenerated into a bloodbath. Why didn't ours? What, if anything, restrained those hotheads? There certainly were actions that would have given me the willies. Many times in many communities, a mob or mob-appointed delegation went to the house of a Tory and persuaded him, so to speak, to make an abject public confession of his error. Breen tells the story of one Ebenezer Punderson, a loyalist Connecticut merchant who endured not one but three of these encounters, refusing the first two times to acknowledge any wrongdoing, and the third time acceding only under extreme duress, after which he was prevented from returning to his family for eight days. When the mob finally released him, he was shadowed by a would-be, but fortunately for him, incompetent assassin, then virtually confined to his home for 30 days, while his wife, children, and aged mother were in understandable perpetual fear. A month later, after renewed death threats, Punderson managed to row far out into Long Island Sound to a British warship. Eventually, he made his way to London, but he was forced to leave his family behind. Sounds awful, doesn't it? Nagging at me is the suspicion that had I lived in late 18th century America, I might have sympathized with the wrong side. I am congenitally lacking in the capacity for outrage. A severe handicap, might I say, during the civil rights movement, anti-war movements, women's movement, and other times. <clears throat> and you can't organize a rebellion among a bunch of people who don't know how to fly, how to fly off the handle. I bridle at all forms of coercion, and I certainly don't like violence, even though the ultimate test of commitment to a cause may be the willingness to engage in violence at great peril to oneself. I suspect it's not just me, though, at least as regards the violence. Coercion and violence are not in the Unitarian Universalist vocabulary. Even when we find in our midst say, maybe speaking at an annual meeting of the congregation, someone like Ebenezer Punderson, who by all accounts would put, a, put to a severe test our fifth principle, the one about inherent worth and dignity of every person, we simply let the person speak and maybe even sympathize with her or him for the courage it takes to speak unpopular views. 
I saw a confirmation of this culture last week while attending General Assembly. In the mini-assemblies and the plenary sessions in which resolutions are debated, redrafted, amended, and voted upon, many, many resolutions, of course, receive near-unanimous support, but some provoke sharply divided responses. Israel and the Palestinians, uh, whether to hold General Assembly in 2012 in Arizona, things like that. The speeches are often passionate, sometimes heatedly so, but nobody comes to blows. And a, a near miracle in itself, whatever animosity the partisans feel seems to defuse rapidly after the vote. Now listen to what T.H. Breen says about the role of that committee system established by the peculiarly named Declaration of the Association. In Ponderson's case, quote, the committees never physically harmed him. They strove to exact a public confession of his ideological errors. In that way, they channeled, indeed constrained, popular violence. Channeled and constrained popular violence, end quote. Tories were disarmed. That was very important. You can't, if you have opposition, you can't allow them to be armed. <clears throat> and ordered not to leave town or meet together. They found it hard to publish their opinions in the press, but they were not severely punished physically, and they were not imprisoned. Quoting Breen again, even after the British Army had killed ordinary American farmers, no one advocated, especially not the men who served on the local committees, the wholesale slaughter of those who had abetted the cursed plans of a tyrannical ruler and an abandoned ministry, Considering the atrocities that have occurred in other revolutions over the last two centuries, we might wonder at such restraint, end quote. So maybe it's those committees who are our people, our stakeholders in the bottom-up revolution. They are the ones who heard and sympathized with the hotheads, but also held the entire community together and kept the movement from fracturing or losing its footing. They made possible what had only shortly before been utterly unthinkable, a total rebellion against an empire of which Americans had only recently been proud citizens. And at the same time, they made it possible for those Enlightenment principles I'm so obsessed with to shape the eventual result. And they weren't handicapped as I am by a tone deafness for outrage. Neither are most of you. I've heard many finely honed expressions of outrage within these walls appropriately focused at targets richly deserving it. It's a head and heart thing, being a patriot of this country. We need both, and we find both within our religious movement and within these walls. May it be so.